This is the Build Wolf Canada podcast, episode number 66. Welcome to the Build Wealth Canada podcast, where it's all about becoming debt-free, accelerating your wealth, and taking control of your money. Now, here's your host, Cornell Schreiber. Hello and welcome to the Build Wealth Canada show. Today, we're going to talk about debt, and debt is an interesting animal. Some are completely against it. Others believe that you can't achieve optimal growth of your wealth without it. And of course, there are those in between that believe it's all about finding that right balance depending on your personal situation and your risk tolerance and your financial stability and also your personality, which can have a big impact on what you are and aren't comfortable with when it comes to debt. Now, what I've personally found too is that your relationship with debt and whether you want to take it on or eliminate it as quickly as possible or just carry it as long as possible can actually change depending on what stage you are in within your life. So just to give you a real life example, using myself as a case study, when my wife and I were in our accumulation stage, both working full time with no kids or dependents of any kind and just living off one of our salaries, we at that stage were very comfortable with that. At that stage, the reasonable thing to do would be to not pay off our mortgage quicker while we're at these record low interest rates especially, and instead focus on maximizing our TFSA and our RRSP contributions. Now, eventually we had kids. So now the attitude toward debt didn't really change much still, but we did have to be a bit more careful about, for example, not buying too big of a house with a giant mortgage so that if one of us lost our jobs, for instance, we would have a hard time keeping up with all the day-to-day expenses and the giant mortgage payment that would leave our account every single month. Then as we got close to reaching our retirement goal within our investment portfolio, we were glad that our mortgage was paid off. And just as an aside, this is a common goal for many retirees because once you are retired and living off your investments, your monthly cash flow situation becomes a lot more stable when you don't have that mortgage or rent payment coming out of your account. Now, don't get me wrong, you can still make it work if you are retired and have a mortgage or are renting, but many retirees do like having that stability of not having those mortgage or rent payments anymore in retirement because let's say you retire and we have a stock market drop like we recently did due to COVID-19. Well, now you really don't want to have to sell your investments while they are temporarily down because just because you desperately need that money to pay your rent or pay your mortgage. So yes, you can plan around this ahead of time with a good fee-for-service financial planner, but I think we can all agree that generally speaking, if you are living off your investments, that it's less stressful when you don't have to, for example, have $1,500 or whatever it may be, leaving your account every single month to pay for your housing that you have to pull from your investments or your cash reserves. So that's just something that I encourage you to think about where instead of identifying as someone that hates debt and avoids at all costs or identifying as someone that's willing to take it every chance they get so that they can pursue different opportunities, I encourage you to instead approach it with an open mind as what is optimal for you right now may be different down the road depending on the life stage and the circumstances that you're going through. But what about other times that we need debt? In an ideal world, we would have enough cash to pay for everything we need. But what if you lost your job and didn't have enough in savings to tie over until you get another one or maybe had an emergency unforeseen expense that your emergency fund just can't sufficiently cover? Well, to answer that question, what I thought would be good to know is the types of debt tools available to us Canadians. In other words, what debt tools or options do we have in our Canadian toolbox, our Canadian arsenal that we can potentially use and what are the pros and cons of each. So my goal for you is that at the end of this episode, you'll know what your options are in Canada specifically so that if you ever do need a loan, you know exactly what tools are available to you, which ones have the lowest and highest rates, and which ones are the easiest and hardest to qualify for. And sure, we've all heard of mortgages and credit cards, but what other types of loans are out there that we could potentially use? 
So to help me with this, our guest for this episode is Scott Satov. He's a CA, a CFA, and the founder of Loans Canada, which was the country's first and today's largest online loan search and comparison platform. So they have a loan search platform that allows you to search for the loan product that you want and then compare lenders and different service providers, and then even leave comments and ratings to help future borrowers make the right choices. And so they're over at loanscanada.ca if you want to check them out. And in addition to having the tool to comparison shop between different types of loans, they actually invested a lot in having lots of educational content on their site as well about debt and different kinds of loans. So it's a good educational resource, I find, too. So I figured if we want to know what types of loans are available to us Canadians in case we ever need them, then why not get the first and largest Canadian loan search and comparison provider to help us with this, since it's clearly their job day in and day out to know what's out there. Before we dive in, I just wanted to let you know about the free guide that I created on the top personal finance and investing tools available to Canadians. These are all tools and sites that I've personally used to help us achieve financial independence and retire in our 30s. And they're also the tools and resources that I use now to optimize and manage our finances and ensure that we're paying the lowest possible fees while getting solid returns on our investments. I'm giving this guide away for free to all Build Wealth Canada listeners. All you have to do is go to buildwealthcanada.ca and enter your email at the top of the page so that I know where to send it. This will also add you to the Build Wealth Canada newsletter where you'll be informed of new free guides as they get released, as well as any giveaways that I have on the show. It's also the best way to ask questions that you want answered on future episodes of the show and suggest what future guides you'd like me to build for you and the community as well. All right, so enjoy the guide and you can get all of that by signing up for free over on the front page of buildwealthcanada.ca. All right, Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks a lot for having me, Cornell. No problem. So Scott, to kick things off, tell us a little bit about yourself, your company and what you do. Yeah, great. Sure. I'm a chartered accountant by trade and I'm actually a CFA as well. Back in 2010, I was the founder and CFO of a company called VersaPay. It's a credit payment processing company and credit authorizer in Canada. The company went public. We founded in 2007 and then it went public in 2010. And following my exit, we decided to start up the first and only loans comparison site in Canada. Very neat. So you guys were the very, very first one. So how long have you guys been in this space? Sure. We started in 2010, actually, with mortgages. The, the, the idea was for people to apply for mortgages online, providing them with rates and other information. We, we did that for two years, between 20, 2010 and 2012. And we didn't find a large enough uptick or people converting on our site. And we made a decision to change our brand in 2012 to Loans Canada. We were the first ones in Canada offering personal loans with a good brand. And it was the start of this revolution in Canada for people offering personal loans. And it just really took off. So since 2012, I guess eight years now, we've been building Loans Canada Today, it's the the leading loan comparison and credit education platform in Canada. That's great. Yeah, I mean, you guys have been at this for a while, so I, I thought it'd be great to have someone like you with, with that level of experience on the show just to inform us about some of the options that we have as Canadians. I mean, ideally, we Canadians, we don't want to have any debt, but the reality is that most Canadians don't have enough money on the side to just, let's say, buy a car or a house with cash or to even fund some really expensive unforeseen emergency, whether it's an expensive home repair, like a, you know, like a roof repair or something, or maybe something medical that you don't have any coverage for, that you're not covered by OHIP, for instance. So, you know, we've all heard of mortgages and using that as an instrument if you do need a loan. But what are some other tools available to us? And can you cover the pros and cons of each one along with which ones are the least expensive options specifically here in Canada, though? Sure. So you got to understand that a personal loan is a fairly new thing in Canada. Banks generally don't do those type of loans. And only in the past eight years have companies come out there and been able to provide an unsecured loan quickly and efficiently to people in the prime and even subprime credit spectrum. 
So it's a new thing in Canada. And you got to understand, generally, a personal loan is supposed to be a short-term instrument to help you out with unforeseen expenses, medical issues, loss of job, transition. It's not supposed to be a long-term thing. And the reason I'm saying that is because a guy who's properly budgeting himself shouldn't really get into those jackpots that he needs more financing. And I mean, the issue is, is that today there's people can't really live within their means. They're not budgeting properly and they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And the problem is when something unforeseen happens, boom, they need some extra capital and they're turning to these personal loans, which is a new a segment of the uh, of the financial economy in Canada. So it's very new and it's it isn't the most it's actually so prior to the personal loan boom which is over the past you know 8 years there were these payday loans and that was the only place people could turn to. Those are a lot more expensive and a lot less value. So the government sort of over the past 5 years they changed that those rules and as well, the emergence of the personal loan came in. So you asked me if they're, you know, the cheapest alternative. I got to tell you that on the spectrum, after a personal loan, there's only a payday loan, which could be up to 500% interest, which makes no sense. Right. Yeah, those are ridiculous for sure. And people are still using them. But so up the scale, you have the personal loan, which can range from 15 to 60%. And then less expensive options are obviously something secured, like a mortgage, a HELOC, a credit card. But when you've exasperated those options, that's when you come down into the personal loan bucket. And now you're taking out more expensive financing. And the key here is, is that you should only be doing that if you can see yourself paying it off in a reasonable amount of time because you can see what the high interest rates it's just going to quickly eat into your savings. So it's supposed to be a short-term situation that people use for unforeseen expenses, unforeseen situation, which and we're human beings. I mean, these things come in and you just, if your daughter's sick, your son needs braces, you don't really have a choice. I mean, you have choices to make, but they're difficult ones. So these personal loans have blossomed. And one of the reasons they were only available now is because the data is available to the lender. So there's all these new technologies that have come into the market that allows the lenders to get more information about the potential borrower, allowing the credit risk to go down to a reasonable level where the lender could actually feel somewhat comfortable issuing a loan. The point is the rates are very expensive. They still have a lot of defaults, these lenders, because once you've exasperated that scenario and you have another jackpot, you're really in financial difficulty. So I would say that it's not the best option. That's why we're so set on, you know, providing education to the consumer, giving him all these options, because we're saying that it's not something you should be doing on a regular basis, but in the event that you don't have a choice, Let's at least educate the consumer to give him what his options are and give him the best source of financing available in Canada. Right. Okay. Now, maybe before we go further, can you tell us what your definition is of a personal loan? How would you define that? Sure. So it's it's unsecured, mm-hmm. number one. That's the biggest part of it. I mean, you might there's other loans available, title loans where you're using your car as security, and it sort of acts like a personal loan. But when I'm talking about personal loan, I'm talking about an unsecured personal loan. It ranges in value. I mean, people say they'll do a $35,000 large sum, but I think that's very uh, unusual. The average is about 4000 in Canada now. And the realistic high point is maybe 15000 as the total, the largest personal loan you can. There's a term to it. There's an, uh, there's an interest rate, um, attached to it in a term. So usually these loans come out and the repayment term could be two, three, four year horizon. Okay. Okay. So let's maybe go through that whole sort of spectrum from the left to the right, the left being the least expensive types of loans and what those are and what are those characteristics that they have. So for example, like I imagine a mortgage would be 
really far on that, probably the furthest on the left side or close to it. And then I guess going all the way to the right would be something like those, you know, payday loans where they're just charging these insane interest rates. And it's like a total, it's unsecured and it's a total last resort for people. And then you're mentioning personal loans, which are are somewhere there in the middle. Can you kind of take us through that that sure. spectrum, because I'm just trying to get in a situation where if somebody, let's say, I don't know, they have some medical emergency that's not covered, or, or I don't know, there, there's a giant hole in their roof, and you know they they don't have the cash just to pay it outright. What is sort of that pecking order that we should go through to say, okay, could I realistically qualify for this? No, okay, what's sort of next down the line? And then I think that can maybe help people in a practical way to, to sort of say, okay, where do I begin? Right, because you don't want somebody going right away to a high interest personal loan when in reality maybe you know they have a house and they can do a home equity line of credit on it and now the loan secured against their house and they're getting a really really good rate so yeah what what is that spectrum from what you've seen sure so you understand as a lender risk increases the rate and lower risk decreases the rate of financing So when you're talking about a mortgage in Canada, it's secured. The lender has pretty much, should have full security. The only thing he might have on his hands is there is that the headache of actually taking control of a property in the event of a default. But if someone has good credit and, and banks don't want your house, they just want you to pay, but they like the security behind it. A mortgage is definitely the cheapest option. And in the whole mortgage spectrum, there's, you know, Banks offering other to lure you away from your bank with cheaper rates and rates can be extremely efficient with a mortgage, you know, under 3%. There's a longer term, you know, usually there, the, it could be a five-year term is the average term, but that's the cheapest sort of financing available. Okay. And then you get into things like what I call is really a refi, which is like a HELOC or a refinancing of the project. And then there's second mortgages. But before we get to the second mortgage, on the HELOCs, assuming they're in first position, those are generally fluctuating with the interest rate, which is moving. Right. And they could get down to the same rates as mortgages, but generally they're a little bit higher. And the payments aren't fixed. A mortgage has a fixed payment per month. A HELOC, it's a line of credit using your home as equity. It's fluctuating with the prime rate as well. So, but when people exhaust the equity in their house, that's where we move down the spectrum because now we're talking about, you know, some unsecured stuff. We haven't gone into car loans. That's a whole other discussion. But after the mortgages, there's credit card options and people can use those for their day to day. And credit cards are expensive. You know, it's a 19% plus there's all these other fees. And then finally, well, not finally, we get to personal loans, which has a range, which can range from 15% all the way up to 55%. And though the values there, like I mentioned before, is somewhere between 1000 and 15000 which the average being 5000 And finally, there's the payday loan. And I think the max on a payday loan in Canada is 1500 And those ratios are outrageous. I mean, they could be all the way up to 500%. Yeah. So, uh, and also, just so you know, Cornell, a lot of people, what they'll, they'll take out a personal loan because they're paying off their credit card. So they're exchanging 2% a month because I'm assuming their credit card is full and that they're just paying the, the, uh, the balance, the interest on the balance. And then they can pay it all off, opens up their credit card, but then they have a fixed payment on this personal loan. And you know the rates, like I mentioned, they're quite expensive. Hey guys, just wanted to do a quick intermission to let you know about a series of instructional videos that I created on how I personally invest step-by-step based on all my research on the best practices in Canada and the advice from the dozens and dozens of Canadian investing experts that I've interviewed over the years. And also in these videos, I go over how to pay the lowest investing fees possible in Canada, how to pay the least amount of tax on your investments, how to know if you're overpaying with your current investments or your current provider. And you'll actually see the recordings and explanations of me investing my own money. So this isn't some hypothetical example from some textbook. It's real life using real money, my own money, showing you how to do everything step by step. 
It's also a way that you can ask me questions one-on-one in case you aren't sure how to do or optimize something within your investments. So definitely check it out. It'll especially be relevant for you if you're just getting started in investing and want one resource that tells you everything you need to know so you can get started and so you don't make some major expensive mistakes or get overcharged by an advisor or an investment. And it's also for you if you've been investing already, but maybe you have one of those quote-unquote free financial advisors and you're wondering why your investment returns just aren't as high as you think they should be. And spoiler alert, it's probably because your advisor put you in some high-fee product that pays them a commission but has massive hidden fees that are being automatically taken out of your investment returns without you even realizing it unless you know where to look. And these fees can really add up to tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars over your lifetime. And when I first heard these numbers from other experts, I had trouble believing it because they were so high, but then I actually calculated myself and and it's actually true. So I mean, massive tens, even hundreds of thousands of dollars over the decades that you're going to be investing. So it's definitely worth your time so that you don't miss out on what could be thousands of extra dollars per year in additional growth on your investments because they're not getting taken out with these giant fees. And so this can obviously really help you retire much earlier compared to the path that you may be currently on if you are not optimized and you are paying some of these fees. If that sounds like something you'd like to learn, then definitely check it out. I've also included the spreadsheets that I use to calculate and automate everything, which will make things much faster and easier for you and help prevent you from making the common expensive investing mistakes that Canadians make. And all of that is available over at Build Wealth Canada ca slash invest so definitely encourage you to check it out that's buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest and now back to the show just to back up a little bit you were talking about mortgages and using a HELOC and for anybody not familiar that stands for home equity line of credit if you do need some money and you do have that home what's the decision that we have to go through when we're deciding okay do I just do a HELOC or to access that money for an emergency let's say or do I take out a second mortgage? I've always had the HELOC. I've never looked into getting a second mortgage. What, what's your thought process on that? I mean, is that something that we have to think about? Or is HELOC pretty much the default if we need the extra money, if it's well, possible? I mean, the thing about the HELOC is that it's going to fall in with the debt to loan value ratio. Mm-hmm. Right, the debt to equity value ratio, your LTV, the loan to value ratio, it's going to fall in there like a mortgage. And, you know, banks like to go up to 80%, sometimes 90 and that's where you fall in on the HELOC. On the second mortgage, you know, now there's companies in Ontario doing it up to 100%. Oh. So, yeah, so their, their first mortgage has already been uh, used up. There's no more loan-to-value available there, and they still need money. They, the home, the, the, uh, the HELOC, the home equity line of credit, isn't available because they're already at their their maximum use for the property, the maximum loan to value. And then there's a second mortgage option. Second mortgages are expensive, not as expensive as a personal loan, but you got to understand also the question is how much money do you need, right? So the, the, you got to look at the value of what you're, of what you're trying to finance. If it's a $30,000 project, you can see right away you're not going to hit the personal loan because it's, they just don't give that much. You have to rely on your home equity to try to borrow. And then the question is, where do you fall? Is it going to be a first? Is it going to be a HELOC? Are you going to have to dive into a second scenario? And a second mortgage, really, it's not like the first mortgage. So just so you understand the difference, the first mortgage is that's generally done by banks, but there's alternative lenders there. They have a first position on the house. They're very secure. The second mortgage guy is behind the first. So if the if the debtor defaults, the second mortgage has to pay out the first to take control of the property to get his money. So they price them differently. Generally, a second mortgage goes from you know nine to I've seen them all the way up to sixteen percent. But then there's a lending fee, which actually adds quite a lot, and the lending fee could be one to two percent. So all these things, though, all these products that we're talking about really depends on the individual. How's their credit? What's their debt-to-income ratio? How does their bank statements look? How's their employment? How long they live in the same place? 
And I mean, again, the biggest really, the biggest factor is your credit, which takes into consideration a lot of these things that I just mentioned. Okay. Okay. So, so just, uh, we'll definitely get to the renters guys. Don't worry <laughs> to everyone listening. Cause I know this isn't just for homeowners, but you know, let's cover the homeowners first. So uh, it sounds like if I understand you correctly, that phase one is really, you have a, let's say you have a house, you have a mortgage, but really that's used to pay your house. So that's not really used for emergencies. But then if you do need money for an emergency, generally speaking, the next step is you do a HELOC because now that loan is secured against your house, which is viewed as safe. And so you're going to get a really low rate compared to some of the other options available. And then after that, if you have already maxed that out, or you you can't get any more through a HELOC, then it sounds like next on the pecking order, generally speaking, we've got something like the second mortgage, where now it's not as secure as the first mortgage for the lender. And so they're going to essentially charge you a lot more. So that sounds like that's option three in a way. Would that be fair to say, generally speaking? Yeah. And okay. Also, you, have, you should also keep in mind that the second mortgage lender is not like a, generally not like a bank. They're very fast. They're very efficient. And they're tough also. They don't want to lose any money. As, as soon as you go into default, they're very proactive versus a bank who's willing to work it out, take longer. Not the same with the second mortgage guy. He's a lender. He doesn't want to get burnt. He's going to take the, the steps that he needs to once that loan goes into default. Okay. Okay. And yeah, so if the loan is going into default, the, for the uh, bank that has that first mortgage, basically they would get all their money first, right? And then if there's money left over to cover that initial liability, then the second mortgage holder steps in, right? Correct. Okay. The second mortgage gets the second mortgage holder would get anything remaining after the first is completely gotcha. paid off. Gotcha. Which is why the rate is they charge more because they're taking on increased risk because they're basically getting whatever is left over after the first mortgage and I guess after the HELOC as well, right? So they're like third down the list. Is is that right? Well, the you know, sometimes a HELOC is the first position. So okay. HELOC mortgage, you know, they're generally in the first. And I would say that I've never really seen too many HELOCs plus second mortgages. The idea is that if you're in a mortgage and you can't convert into a HELOC with more available financing, then you're going to go from the first, add a second onto it. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. So that's, that, that's phase uh, part two. And then I assume the next phase, and this is the phase where if someone is a renter, this is where they would start, right? Because they don't have access to equity in their home to begin with. So then we get into sort of the choice number three. So what, what would that be in terms of the next option of the lowest trade available? Is that Are we at credit cards at that point or something else? Yeah, I would say credit cards are, are you know, more flexible and probably a better rate overall than a personal loan. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times the guy can get applied for a credit card, he's going to be able to fund some of his expenses, which will cover the money that he's needed. Mm-hmm. And then secured credit card, there are some credit cards that are secured, which let you get lower rates as well. Is that correct? There is some secured Visa cards. We sell one of them, Capital One to be to be exact, but those are still pretty expensive and you have to put up money security to get the credits. Hmm. So there's a lot less value. And the reason why people are, are gung-ho on this is because it, is, it lets them establish a credit, their credit right away. They're on the board. If it's people that don't have credit, have come from abroad, you know, are trying to reestablish their credit, it's a simple and easy way to get a trade on you is buy a secured Visa card. Okay. So it's a credit building tool that someone can use if they're not able to get a traditional credit card either because of some, they've had a bad history with loans, or maybe they're new to the country, they don't, or they don't have a history of it, then that's Correct. a tool that they use. Okay, interesting. Okay. We call that a thin credit file. Okay. Before we get to the credit cards, isn't there some sort of arrangements you can make with a bank where you say, okay, I would like to take out a loan, I don't want to use a credit card, but I will... I'm happy to have my put up my car, let's say, as collateral for a loan from you guys. So, can you now give me a lower rate than what a credit card would give me because I'm put I'm now doing a secured loan by, let's say, doing my my car as collateral? Isn't that an option as well? No, we're not going to put the car into this mix because that's a whole other story. Generally, when someone's taking a loan on their car, it's for the full value of the car. There isn't money coming out. There's no financing coming out. But I think what you're thinking of is a consolidation, you know, and a consolidation could happen with your bank when you have outstanding credit cards, your mortgage is, um, there's still, there's still equity in your house. And what you'll do is you'll get a bigger mortgage 
and you'll clean up all your credit cards and all your debts. It's a consolidation, but it's generally using a mortgage as the financing vehicle. Right. Uh, yeah, what I'm thinking more is if you have some sort of material assets that are actually worth something and you want to use them as collateral to get a loan for whatever, okay. for whatever reason. Yeah, uh, you know, in Canada, those are oddball situations except for real estate. Interesting, okay. Real estate, I mean, you're talking about these pawn type arrangements as security. So there's some, we should talk about card title loans because there is another vehicle now. So let's say someone needs a $5,000 loan, but they don't have good credit. So they're being rejected by the personal lenders because they have a bad credit score, their their loan to income ratio is upside down. What lenders will do now is you have a, if you have a car that doesn't have a financing on it, and keep in mind, Cornell, most people cars are financed. Right. So we're talking about a car with the loan is paid off that has value, and they're going to look at you know they're going to take the market value and divide it by two because they're looking at net realizable or liquidation value. And then against that, they might give you up to 50% as a loan. It's like a personal loan, but they do put a title on your car. But the rates aren't cheap. And the rates, I haven't seen a title loan cheaper than 19% and generally the 30-something. Interesting. So even if you go with, if you're trying to get a secured loan, you, I'm trying to think of it from the place of let's say someone's renting, right? And they don't, they have money, like everything is fine, you know, but they don't have a house, but they have all these other assets. Like they may have a paid off car, maybe they have a bunch in invest, like, you know, maybe they have like a several hundred thousand dollar investment portfolio or something like that, right? Well, so hold on a sec. Yeah. Wait a second there. An investment portfolio, you can generally have a mark, make it into a margin account. Yes. Now, I don't. You know, I'm a CFA by trade, and I, I don't really, I don't think that's the way to go. I think you're better off. I don't, I don't like you know leveraging your securities because I just think you're accumulating interest. And I mean, you could just sell the stock if you really needed the capital, if that's the last resort. True. Yeah. Yeah. It's like why bother with with doing loans and all that if you can just Taking sell them. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And again, on the car side, like we discussed. If you do have a car and it happens to have real value, maybe you should sell the car rather than mm-hmm. if you really have a car with value that and you need some money for your immediate expense, probably better off selling the car than taking a loan and getting charged these outrageous rates. That, yeah, I'm really surprised to hear that about the, the car example you gave because they're going to give you a very low value on the car because obviously they don't want to lose money if it defaults and they have to actually sell it. And you're saying they're still charging you what it sounds like similar to what credits, credit cards charge, even though it's now a secured loan. Is that right? Sure. But you got to understand some of the intricacies of that. You can go on the internet, look for a card title loan. Maybe the guy won't even see you. Right. So he doesn't see you. He doesn't know. He's financing an account. He's been scammed before, mm-hmm. <laughs> for sure. He's took some losses you know, he doesn't know if you're tomorrow you're going to drive that car off a bridge. There's still risk to him. Right. There's still a lot of risk in it. That and he's saying to himself, "If you really need money, sell your car." Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. So, you're, so from what you're saying, it sounds like in the current loan environment in Canada at this moment in time, it's actually pretty tough to get a good rate, a low rate on a loan that's maybe just like around the HELOC if you don't have a house. And it sounds like. You're going for HELOCs, maybe second mortgage. And after that, like you said, pretty much credit cards are, are typically your next option down the line. There isn't that much of an in-between, even if you have some collateral that you could theoretically put up. Is that my understanding? You well, there? you have it right. And you got to understand that I've seen lenders talk about these personal loans in the 10 11% larger values, but I haven't seen them being issued or if it's very rare very small amount of people. It's not mainstream to get a personal loan at a reasonable, you know, around the the, hmm. the the 10%. In America, it is. In America, companies like Avant, they'll issue a loan at 10%, 12%. SoFi, you know, will do it under 10%. And, but and, and this would be a secured loan against some asset that you have. Is that no, I'm talking about even unsecured. unsecured. Oh, wow. Loan. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. So there's a couple of them in the States that have gone in that market. You know, Marcus, which is owned by Goldman Sachs, is issuing personal loans. 
they're saying lower rates, and I that sounds great. And I don't know the intricacies if they're just a lot of guys will mention that they have a ten percent rate, but by the time you come in and they look at your file, they're saying, "Yeah, we we advertise ten, but because of this, 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 and this, mm. it's really a twenty five percent. We've risk adjusted, and that happens every day. And I don't think it's a dupe. I think generally, first of all, the consumer thinks he has more credit." Than he really does. And the lender is looking at it in a different way. And he's saying, you know, I don't want to get burnt on this transaction. So he's looking at it a little different than the consumer. So the consumer has these great ideas of how much he's going to get and lower rates. And the lender gives it the reality check. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's very, very interesting. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's too bad. I thought there would be some sort of uh, sort of in between, right? If Especially if you're a renter, right? I mean, it's if you have certain assets, it'd be nice if you could put some of those up for collateral and uh, and and have that to get a temporary low interest loan. Uh, but it sounds like that's just not uh, the environment we live we live in. Essentially, wow, that's that's too bad. That's unfortunate. Um, it is. But but I get. But you bring up a good point. I mean, like with the car example as collateral, what's the, the how do they know that you're not gonna crash the car the next day, the moment they do it, right? And and it's and you you get drunk and you drive the car and crash. You know, like there, there's all these crazy things that could happen. And, and there's there's collection costs, exactly, and exactly. Repo costs, and you have to find the car, and then you know there's also, and then you got to go to auction. There's auction fees. Yeah, so. yeah. So I wonder if they're just it's like not- they're like we'd rather just. So I wonder. So do you think with the lenders, is it just they're saying we don't like if it's not against if it's not secured against the house, then we just don't really want to play this secured debt game, and so we'll give you an unsecured loan, and we're just going to charge you a higher interest rate to compensate us for the extra risk that we're taking. Is that pretty much what's happening? Do you think? That that's generally what's happening. Or if they're big into car titles, and there's a couple in Canada that are into the car title loan game. Like I said, they're going to be very conservative mm-hmm. in the amount, and the rates are outrageous. Very, yeah, that's very interesting. I'm such a nerd because I'm finding this so fascinating. I don't know if anyone else is, but it's just interesting to know kind of what I know. I, I look oh, at. Oh, I, I have such stories, Cornell. I mean, you know, you got to understand that it's people are very hungry for credit. People come for car, people apply at our site that, you know, are looking for financing and you can ask them questions like, do you own a car loan? Do you own a car? Do you have a car loan? He'll say, yeah, I have a car loan. How much is your car loan? $12,000. How much is your car? There is no car. Wow. All right. What do you mean the car? Well, the car blew up and I'm still paying off the loan. Or, yeah, I have a car loan. It's $25,000 left on it and the car's worth $3,000, $4,000. They're upside down because... They might have entered into a transaction prior with the with their old car to top up the loan, clean up the old balance. The lender added it to the new loan. They're always upside down, mm-hmm. and it's that's the sad part. And you know, you got what I know is that a lot of the banks are also they 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 have a lot of these car loans, and the and the value of the cars is less than the loans the loan value. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, somebody buys a. A, br- a brand new nice car and then it starts obviously we all know they depreciate very very quickly especially if you're if you buy a new car and then they the car gets crashed whatever right well you still owe, you still owe that money on the car right and things can get pretty pretty interesting there yeah maybe your insurance isn't the full amount exactly you know? yeah, right right yeah or when you took up the loan you rolled in another loan that's a big right now if you go to a dealer i have a car i have a loan he'll say oh no problem you know we'll roll in the old loan into a new loan and then you're dead. Mm-hmm. So you always got to look at the loan fees and, and and all the adjustments when you're when you're taking out a new loan. Very interesting. Okay, well that's good. I mean, thanks for your patience and in diving into these different options here. Because yeah, I've I've, uh, I've myself I've only done a mortgage and I've only done a HELOC in the past in personal experience. So it's interesting to go into these other options and see what is available for people. Because yeah, in our case we were homeowners, and so the HELOC was just a very easy, flexible default that I went to. Uh, by default, I mean automatic choice, not not loan default. <laughs> but uh, uh, but but I realized that's not everyone, right? And it's not like you have to have a house some people rent and then so you know what are the options there or some people don't aren't able to get a HELOC or you know maybe they're already maxed out in terms of how much they can secure you know get from their house so uh yeah so no thank you is there anything else you want to touch on in that particular well, question or are we are we good i mean i think we'd like to move on but i just yeah. there is some new products on the market you know there's some peer-to-peer lenders that are trying to come in who say that there'll be there'll be investors who want a limited return on their capital, 10, 11%. And there's all these borrowers who need money. 
They'll match you and it'll be a less expensive financing than a typical lender. It hasn't taken off in Canada. They're trying to get in. I'm working with one right now. But right now, though, there there really isn't, you know, these large, unsecured, low-rate loans that exist in the country. Gotcha. Yeah, that's interesting. I have gotten a few questions from listeners of the show about the, the peer-to-peer lending and then kind of what I think of it, that kind of a thing. Do you, do you have an opinion on it? It's really hard to work, actually. It's mm-hmm. really hard because, you know, these guys are investors. They're They're passive. A lender has skills. A lender can smell a bad deal. A lender's been burnt before, doesn't want to get burnt again. So you're putting an onus on the platform in the middle. And yes. that that's a weakness because it's not your platform. And you don't know who the guy is on the other end. And you want to get these returns, but you don't understand the true risks involved. And so I feel that and then, you know, when the loan goes bad, then you're going to call the platform and say, you issued me that loan and who are you going to point fingers? So there, there's definitely challenge and obviously regulation and compliance. So mm-hmm. there's challenges in the States. There's Lending Club and it's it's doing very well. I think they're mostly packaging the loans. I know it's, I know it's not a pure peer-to-peer, but it, it, the model works mm-hmm. in the U.S. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, because I guess if you work at a bank and you're a loan officer and what you do all day from 9 to 5 is screen loans – then you get a kind of almost like a sixth sense for it, right? You start seeing patterns, you start knowing what, you know, what to look out for, what, what's probably okay to omit. And, uh, but if, yeah, if, if you're just a regular person like myself, you don't have that experience. So like you said, you're relying fully on the platform, which is a risk to you as, as the borrower. Yeah. So yeah, very, very interesting. What are the, the, you're moving on then, what are the different things that are within our control that we can do to get the lowest rates on our loans and to, for example, the credit score, things like that. Or what are sure. the things in our toolbox that we can use to get the lowest rates? So I'm going to start with budgeting. I mean, I'm going to start out with, I'm going to back up and say that budgeting and understanding your financial position to begin with is the most important part of this. Realizing that if you're going like, these people that are taking out personal loans, a lot of them are recurring loan stacking, taking out one or the other. They've been around the block before. My point is that you should have your house in order that you should only get into that situation in a real emergency, not because you want to take a trip or overspend. You have to curb your spending and live within your means. Once you do that and you're still in a situation that you need extra credit, You have to be smart about, number one, keeping your credit score in a reasonable position, which is, you know, those are basic things, paying off your bills on time, not having too many lenders, you know, not applying for too much credit all over the place, making sure your loan to income ratios are in check, making sure that you don't have too many credit cards available. So there's sort of a blend of all these things, but... I mean, you you really get into trouble when you don't pay off a balance. And this happened years ago with the phone bills. You know, people get a new cell phone with uh, Rogers and then they ran it up thousands of dollars. They wouldn't pay it. And Rogers kept those on your credit fo- on your credit file. And then when people went to get a money what they really needed, they were screwed because um, they just their, their credit was impacted. So having a good credit score is, a, is very important. And again, basic things, making sure you pay off all your bills on time, not looking around for financing too much, and uh, just being diligent with your finances in general. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I always recommend people check their credit score at least to get the full credit score report at least once a year, just because maybe there is something that you forgot about or that got overlooked, or maybe even maybe even something that wasn't really your fault. Maybe it's just fraud or something, and it's just destroying your credit score. And then when you actually do need the money, you go and apply and then you find out about the surprises at that point. And I mean, that can be horrible, right? I mean, let's say you're shopping for a house and you finally found one that you like and you go to get a, try to get a mortgage on it. And then at that point, you're, you find out that you're actually not eligible or you're going to have trouble because of some blemish on the credit report. Whereas if you check that a year ago, you know, or if you've been checking your report annually, maybe you would have detected that, that, that there is an issue and you could have started fixing it, right? Instead of just getting the surprise 
and now you probably miss out on the house because they're not going to wait around for you to fix up your credit score, right? So yeah, I think that's a good preemptive thing as well. That's one of- So that's great advice, Cornell, and you, you, you nailed it because you got to understand also the credit scores weren't available this readily on your phone, on your computer until the past couple of years. Like credit has exploded. People using the credit information more than ever, people manipulating it and on your end following it. And there's also, you got to understand that there's people stealing identities left and right out there. So now identities are being stolen. Cards are being issued in your name. How else do you control it but looking at your credit file and seeing what your trades are and what's been paid? And I agree with you. Checking your credit is very important because you never know what you're going to find. Mm-hmm, for sure. Yeah, it's one of those preventive things that can really make a big difference. Because, yeah, it's not something you want to surprise. And, I mean, sometimes you can it can take so long to clear up certain things on the credit report. I remember knowing someone that, that I rented something to. And, I mean, they had a blemish that took them, I don't know, like a really long time, over a year to actually clean up. It can take such a long time. And, I mean, in that time, you might not be able to buy the house you wanted because – you know, you're, you're, the, the banks don't want to touch you at that point, right? So things like that definitely, I mean, I've seen it happen and it's pretty pretty upsetting for people, right? When they're all ready to go and then this credit score thing just stops them in their tracks and now they have to spend a year repairing it, for example. Let's move on to uh, another question about financing for new or used cars. So, I mean, a lot, a lot of people don't have the cash to buy a new or used car outright. So what have you found to be the best practices for getting the best loan for a new versus a used car? So for example, there's so many options it's, it seems right you can go through the dealer you can go to your bank you can go to sites like yours that you know pull different rates from different providers and shop around that way you know what's what's been your take on it in terms of sort of best practices and what the options are sure so th- this is a really big topic these car loans because they've just gone ballistic in the past couple of years and it reminds me a bit of the of the mortgage bubble that we saw in the US and somewhat in Canada Look, car prices keep going up, and nowadays it just everyone's financing them, their car. But you know, let's start with the basics. First of all, the first thing you can do is buy a used car rather than a new car. So that there's some risk to it. The risks are, of course, that there's something wrong with the car, but there's ways to mitigate those risks by checking, bring it to a mechanic, um, having someone qualified take a look at it. So the first thing is buying a used car is way more financially responsible than a new car. That's the first thing. Now, once you're looking for a loan, you might as well do your research in advance. You might as well, you can get pre-approved these days. So that'll help a lot because you can realize how much credit is available to you, especially to purchase a car. And then take that financing to a dealer and say, hey, look, you know, I've been approved by XYZ lender and uh, now I'd like to buy this car. So shopping around, looking at the terms, making sure, you know, when you sign that deal for a car loan, what's in those? There's so many other things they put in there that are important, Um, you know, on closing. So you got to make sure that exactly what you're paying for what's what you're supposed to be paying. And um, again, if you have a good credit score, you'll be offered car loans everywhere and a lot cheaper. So used cars are cheaper, shop around. You can always go to the dealer after for a car financing once you pick the car. But getting pre-approved is a very good idea with sites like Loans Canada. You can go there in a couple clicks. You can get a pre-approved for a car loan. And that'll just give you more options and you could just... You take that knowledge and just buy the best car at the best rate. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. I like that. You get pre-approved first, and then you have that basically in your pocket as sort of ammunition when you go to the dealer, if you decide to use a dealer. And then, I mean, it just increases your negotiating position, I think, because you have, you've already have done the competitor research and then what you could get a loan for. Yeah, no, that, that, makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. The other thing is, though, is that, you know, you really look at the, the fine print. I mean, people today, I see friends and they say, well, how much is your car? My car, my car is $5.99 a month. Well, I look at that and I hear that. I'm like, $5.99 a month? You didn't tell me how many months. What would you put up Right, on? right. It, you could have bought that car for like 200 k right. right? And it's like, oh, well, let's just ignore that. It's a, you bought a 200 k car. So it's not only about the monthly rate, it's about, there's many other things, the total value, the interest rate, the term, how many payments, the extras, etc. 
So the fine print on the deal, it's not just the monthly rate. That's correct. Sure. And yeah, I mean, when you see the, I mean, you see that in the ads, right? And even when you drive by the lot, right? You'll see like, oh, you know, $500 a month or whatever, right? And it's like, well, it doesn't tell me how much the car is. <laughs> if you're like charging me, you know, 20% more, you know, than, than what the car is actually worth. I mean, the monthly rate doesn't really matter, right? Uh, uh, yeah, it's 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 crazy. But yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of like what you said about getting pre-approved first. Because then it just you can then go into the dealer with that education, and you know for sure they're gonna pitch you their lending program or whatever it's called. And then at least at that point, you've already done research, so you know roughly what is a good rate from different lenders in the market. So if they are trying to rip you off, you just figure that out in seconds because you hear what their initial offer is, and if you see that, and if you already know that you can get a rate much lower right away, you know, okay, they're clearly trying to jit me here. So better put my guard on. And obviously, I'm not gonna get financing through them. So yeah, I think that's a really good idea. Really good idea. Awesome. Yeah, that's really smart. Okay, that's yeah. I've I've always bought my cars with cash, so I, I have zero experience in this car lending market. But uh, I realize that's not sort of the average scenario. So it's good to sort of have this actionable plan, right? That people can go and do it. Well, the bad part to paying cash, it's definitely a more financially responsible way to do it. But in a lease scenario, you have an end of term, so you don't have to go through the sale process if you want to sell your car. You know it's finite. You know it's a three-year term. It's probably more expensive, but it's, you know, for me at least, the way I see it is that it's not that the people don't have the money. It's a lot of the flexibility of returning the car. It's very hard to sell a car once you do own it. And, you know, a lot of people get stuck with it when they want to change. So then they're going to the dealer for a trade and they'll get you there too. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Yeah. Yeah, that's like a whole other animal, the whole leasing car versus just buying it outright uh, debate. But uh, yeah, maybe we'll, we'll save that for another day because I'm, I'm sure we could talk for half an hour just, to, sure. <laughs> just about that because there are pros and cons of each. Yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I've personally, sure. I've always bought the car used. I found Kijiji to be awesome because then I just bypass the dealer and then you just negotiate directly with the owner. I found to get the lowest rates that way. But then for sure, you do have to do your due diligence, right? Because that is, it's not like the car's coming with like a warranty typically, right? Like you would if you bought a brand new car from a dealer. So, but yeah, that, that, that's worked well for me at least. The most effective ways for building your credit score. I think you touched on that already, right? Or did you have something to add there? No, I mean, I I don't know if I, I, I'd rather, I I don't mind going through it again because it's very, very important. You know, to build a good credit score, you need to create a healthy credit history for yourself. So that's using credit products regularly, but responsibly as well. A good start is your credit card. Okay. If you're trying to rebuild your credit after pass funding, a secured card is the definitely the cheapest way to do it because you have no credit. But other tricks, make payments on time. Even if this is your utility bill, your phone bill, your credit card, make sure those payments go out on time. Keeping your credit utilization low is important. Hey, can you define that for anybody that's not familiar? Yeah, so I mean... So credit utilization below 30%, which means that you don't use 30% of your available credit card limit. As soon as you're maxing out your credit card every month, it's going to affect your credit card. So don't use the whole thing. Or you know what a trick is some people do is paying it down twice per month. That's not a bad. That's a trick that I've learned. Pay off your credit card twice per month. That means that you're not using the full utilization which is going to impact on the positive side on your credit score. That's an, that's a neat trick. Yeah, because with uh, some people will say, oh, well, just ask them to increase your limit. And then that percentage is going to be easier to you know to stay below. But if you can't have your limit increased or maybe you don't have much of a credit history or it's a new credit card company you've ever dealt with before, then yeah, maybe they don't feel comfortable increasing your credit right away. And in that case, right. yeah, if you just pay it off more often, then yeah, it's much easier to stay within that for sure. That makes sense. Right. Now... Obviously, credit diversity is important. You know, different credit products, lines of credit, credit cards, car loans, all of them together, a nice healthy balance also helps improve your credit. Um, and I'll, always take on debt that you can't afford. That's that's That'll always help. You know, don't get into a situation where you can't afford it and that's where you get into trouble with your credit score. Mm-hmm. Now, if let's say someone has an average credit score, is it worth the effort to actually try to improve it? So in other words, how large are the savings that you get by improving your credit score? Um, is it is it work, worth all this work involved, uh, you know, to build your credit score? I mean, are we talking you're saving just a few dollars or can this be really, really significant? So 100%, you always should be building your credit score. 
The thing is, you just don't know what's around the corner. And if you did have a crystal ball, you would know if you need to keep your credit score in check or not. But the point is, you don't. And you might have a situation down the road. You might get divorced. You might want to buy a new house. As soon as you go to the bank and the first thing they check is your credit score, oh boy, you know, you don't want to be in for a surprise. So always build it. It's going to save you quite a substantial amount. And I mean, the savings is really hard to say. It depends on the bigger balances on a million dollar mortgage. You know, 1% is, is quite, a, quite a large amount for, um, for, a, for a change in, in, on your expense side. So there is a big spread, but it's not really the difference in how much you're going to save. It's that when you need that credit, it's available mm-hmm. to you. And only some, you know, sometimes only the best credit cards are for the high, for the high credit scores and going to your bank for a mortgage, which is so important. So a lot of these things will really help. Also, maybe you want to buy a house and it's closing quickly and you can just make one quick call to your bank because your credit's so stellar. Sure, no problem versus, oh, I'm not sure. I got to look around. So having a good credit score will also be, always be beneficial for your financial future. Right, especially with this competitive real estate environment that a lot of Canadians are, are used to now, right? Where you're getting into these sure. multiple these multiple bids and all these things and people removing conditions. And it's like, well, yeah, the, the financing thing is, is pretty, pretty critical. Because yeah, I've noticed if you have a really good credit score, they make you jump through a lot less hoops. Whereas if you have, if your credit score is questionable, there's more hoops you have to jump through to maybe get approved. And then that's where things can get problematic and you miss it on the property, that kind of a thing. Do you And special offers also. You know, a lot of times there's special offers for people with high credit. Oh, okay, interesting. Oh, like like where a bank or someone would offer a special yeah. thing just because you have a credit. Okay, interesting. Do you know roughly ballpark how much the rate can vary for, for someone, let's say, with horrible credit versus really good credit? You know, in terms of percent? Uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to say, but let's on the car loan side, just on the car loan side, you know, there's car loans at prime and there's car loans at 29%. Oh my goodness. Okay. So it's a big, a big range. Okay. <laughs> but it also, you know, as the higher value you're talking about, you can't start charging those high rates. Like I just can't afford it. Mm-hmm. You're not going to buy a hundred thousand dollar car with, uh, you know, the 29% car loan. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm hoping you won't. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but if you need like a couple thousand dollar car, it's all you have. It's not as material to you. But trying to, you know, buying a very fancy luxury vehicle and realizing that, oh my God, I got to pay this extra expense. That's me makes no sense. You got to be a lot smarter than mm-hmm. that. For sure. No, that's great. Thank you for that. What are your thoughts on debt consolidation? And when should somebody consider using it versus not? Sure. So it's a tricky question, you know. It really depends on the type of debt you carry and what your short versus long-term goals are. You know, if you're carrying a lot of high-interest debt, then finding a way to pay it down with a HELOC, for example, is a very good idea. Um, if you carry a lot of high-interest if you carry a lot of high-interest debt, no home equity, low income, your immediate goal might be to reduce reduce your monthly re- your debt repayment. So. Debt consolidation at the end, if you're going to get cheaper financing and save money, that's fantastic because what happens is when you add a car loan, a mortgage, a credit card, all these different you know, financial products are all adding a rate, adding a different rate, adding a higher rate, it ends up being very expensive if you can consolidate, let's say, with one mortgage for everything then your rate will go down that much effectively. So I believe in debt consolidation. Everyone wants to do it. The problem is when you're at the point that you cannot consolidate, I mean, you're, you're at every, all your accounts are at the high level of the debt and there's no way you're going to be able to get more money to pay it all off. And then there's, and then obviously you're in a different situation where we could talk about credit counseling and consumer proposal and bankruptcy. But prior to those, you always want to carry the lowest debt. And if you could always exchange lower interest debt for, I'm sorry, if you always change from higher interest rate to lower interest debt, you're going to just save money. It's going to save you dollars. For sure. Yeah. So for anybody just getting started on this, if, if you're not familiar, that would be like, let's say you have a, a credit card debt of, let's say, you know, 18%, 20%, and you're carrying a balance on that and you don't have enough cash flow every month to pay it off. 
So the one option would be to, let's say you open up a HELOC on your house and then you pay off that entire balance on that credit card with that HELOC. And yeah, the debt's not gone. You still have that debt, but now you're getting paid. Now you're paying a much, much, much lower interest rate on that loan versus like a really, really high credit card loan. So it's a way of swapping. So this high interest debt for low interest debt. And then of course, the landmine that I always have to mention when we talk about this is the whole part about, okay, we moved it to a HELOC, great. And now I'm going to go max out that credit card again, right? And get back into the same problem. And now you've got more debt in the HELOC and you've got credit card debt again. And then it can become this sort of death spiral, right? Where you're just constantly in debt until eventually you're maxed out. And then now you're you know, potentially on the verge of bankruptcy. So I always have to mention that kind of cautionary tale, but I'm with you. I mean, I think it's a great, I think it's a great strategy when used properly for sure. If you can do it, it's great. If you have the equity in the house, which is the main consolidating asset, that's fantastic. And again, you you hit it on the head, uh, Cornell. If you're taking the consolidation, the financing, paying off your credit cards, and then opening them up and using them again, you're going to be in a worse situation than you were before. So try to avoid that. Yeah. If I'm paying 19% credit card and I can lower that down to like prime plus 0.5, like why the heck wouldn't you do that? Unless you know for sure you have like that little self-control. Um, but, I, but I think listeners of the podcast definitely have, have the self-control, so I don't really worry about that. What are would you say are your top strategies for getting out of debt, especially for those that are struggling or feeling the pressure from the loans that they already have outstanding? Sure. There's a couple ways to do it. Either you're going to spend less or make more, right? It always comes back to those two things. Yeah, no matter how uh, how advanced the tactics get, it comes down to those two things. Make more or spend less. So making more, you're probably in a job situation and everyone wants to make more, but I don't think if your boss feels the same way. You're not in control of that always, although you can get a second job if that's possible. That's great if your family life can afford that. But then there's obviously the idea of spending less. And this is something that in today's society, people don't like to hear. But again, you know, if you're going to talk budgeting, and I know you talk a lot about budgeting, you know, I think there has to be a certain amount of your income that goes into these pools that's saved away for a rainy day, an emergency fund. And that's the best way to not get into a jackpot is to actually controlling your spending, realizing that you're not going to get everything you want. Unfortunately, everyone wants more. The question is, where do you draw the line and what can you reasonably afford? So budgeting, understanding your limitation, understanding that life comes with jackpots. It's going to happen. So are you prepared for it when it does happen? Yeah. And I mean, I feel a bit bad for the renters uh, on this episode because we, we talk a lot about, well, using your HELOC and how great that is and what a great tool it is. And I mean, I'm I'm a big fan. I know we used that back with our with our previous property. But I guess it sounds like for a renter, the best practice is what you said about, ha- especially if you're a renter, making sure you do have that emergency fund so that you're not forced to take out loans that are at, incre- at incredibly high rates because you did get into some unforeseen emergency. Um, and obviously, it's good to have that too, even if you own a home. But you, you might have that HELOC to be, sort of be your saving grace temporarily, at least, until you get back on your feet. But it sounds like for a renter, that seems to be sort of the best strategy. What, what do you think about that? Do you agree? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're a renter and you're thinking of going into a home, you're probably saving up anyways. True. So now you're saving up and now, which is great because you're realizing that my income, you know, a a portion of it has to go for the future, which is great. The problem is that if you get into a jackpot before you buy your house and you're dipping into that fund to pay your jackpot rather than using it for the house. Mm -hmm. But the key point is, you know, budget and definitely put away a fund for a rainy day Mm -hmm. or an emergency. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. All right. Well, that's great. Well, I mean, thanks so much for coming on the show and sharing your expertise. Uh, like I said, I'm I'm new to the whole sort of debt world other than the mortgage and the HELOC. So this was really uh, eye-opening for me. And it's really neat to get a good update on what the loan environment is like here in Canada, just so that we sort of know what tools are out there. And and then that way we can strategically pick the best one or or like you were saying, right? At least set yourself up in a situation like building your credit, for example, right? And monitoring your credit score so that with if or when you do need it, you're able to basically get the best option out there that's available to us and not get into these sort of predatory lending scenarios, right? That some people unfortunately get into. So um, yeah, so thanks again. And can you tell us a bit more about where we can find you and learn more from you and your company, you know, especially when it comes to learning about optimizing our loans or getting the lowest rates? 
Yeah, so Loans Canada, the number one destination for all loans, comparison, and credit in Canada. We've been around for 10 years. We have so much information there about credit building, credit counseling, debt, all types of loan, what's the best loan, calculators. We really wanted to pivot ourselves and point ourselves in the face of the consumer, give him that education that he needs to make the best informed decisions. We're not the lender. We only want to make sure that people borrow responsibly, but we want to provide them with all the tools necessary to make those decisions. And at our site, you can check out our blog. You can check out some of the videos that we do. We're very, very keen on providing that credit information and all the options available to every Canadian so he won't get in debt. And if he does get in debt, he can get out of debt quickly and efficiently. That's great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Scott. I, I appreciate it. And uh, and yeah, and I'll, I'll link to, to that as well uh, in the show notes as well. So um, yeah, thanks again. Thank you, Cornell. Right. Great to have you. Take care. Bye. Thanks. All right. A big thanks to Scott Satov from loanscanada.ca for coming on the show, helping us understand all the different options available for us when it comes to debt. Don't forget to sign up for free to receive exclusive content and giveaways only available to Build Wealth Canada email subscribers. You can do that by signing up at the top of the page over at buildwealthcanada.ca. And when you do that, you'll also receive the guide that I created on the top personal finance and investing tools available to Canadians. These are all the tools and sites that I've personally used to help us achieve financial independence and retire in our 30s. And they're also the tools and resources that I use now to optimize and manage our finances and ensure that we're paying the lowest fees while getting a solid return on our investment. So you can get all of that for free by signing up over at the top of the page at buildwealthcanada.ca. And if you want to see the instructional videos on how I personally invest step-by-step based on all my research on the best practices in Canada and the advice from the dozens and dozens of Canadian investing experts that I've interviewed over the years, then you can get all of that over at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. And in those videos, I go over how to pay the lowest investing fees possible in Canada, how to pay the least amount of tax on your investments, how to know if you're overpaying with your current investments and your current advisor, and you'll actually see the recordings and explanations of me investing my own money and see which investments I actually buy. It's also a way that you can ask me questions one-on-one in case you aren't sure how to do or optimize something within your investments. So definitely check it out. I've also included the spreadsheets that I use to calculate and automate everything as much as is possible which will make things much faster and easier for you and help prevent you from making the common expensive investing mistakes that a lot of Canadians make. And all of that is available at buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. That's buildwealthcanada.ca slash invest. Thanks for listening to the Build Wealth Canada podcast at www.buildwealthcanada.ca.